morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. We're enjoying a little um, quality time with the sound system here at uh, KAZM this morning. Um, We have um, uh, a distinguished American economist. Uh, There are these silly websites, and one of them is called Famous Economists, and there he is when you go on that website. But he's the senior economist um, at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in uh, Washington, D.C., lives now in Kanab, Utah. Uh, Dean, are you there? Yeah, I could hear you more or less. Okay, well, that's the progress. Karen McClellan is here. She's kind of co-hosting the show. And we have another guest, uh, Steve Segner, who's very much interested in economics and who owns a health El Portal Hotel, which has been very supportive of our show, but also um, is just a, is, a, is I think the dog friendliest hotel in America, Steve. Yeah, one of the first. Yeah, one of the first. So there's places you can bring your dog. Anyway, we're hoping you'll still come to um, Sedona in um, uh, in the fall sometime. All right. So I guess the big thing, uh, even on um, Liberal Democratic minds is inflation. Um, do you, when we talked to you last, you thought inflation would fade, beginning would be fading by now. Is there any sign of that, or is it is it continuing at this high rate? Um, inflation well, being a good pl- question. Um, Go ahead. You know, clearly it's lasted longer than I expected, and. What's striking to me, you know, there's this big debate, transitory, or, you know, is this a longer-term phenomena. The issues, to my mind, whether it's transitory or longer-term, are whether we think there are unusual factors associated with reopening from the pandemic, that's a transitory story, or that we've permanently changed the sort of underlying structures in the economy so that we have higher rates of inflation sort of built in. And... To my view, it's still very much the transitory story. And, you know, just to sort of give the outline of that, the transitory story was we reopened and all these sectors that had been shut down, suddenly they're seeing large amounts of demand that they weren't able to meet. And what that meant was you had big backlogs in a wide variety of areas, lumber, um, uh, shipping in general, um, autos in particular, we had a Firing a semiconductor plant in in Japan's created a worldwide shortage of semiconductors, which has meant a slowed production of cars. So we had a number of factors that were one time, and that did push up prices. And to my view, that's not all surprise. An important point that I and others have made: that's not just in the U.S. It's happened in Germany, and France, and the U.K. So the people say, "Oh, stupid Biden! He did this, this, or that." And you go, "Well." It'd have to have been pretty smart to have caused all this inflation in Germany and France and UK with something he did here. So that, to my view, still supports the one-time story. Now, it's going on longer, but is there evidence that it's coming to an end? To my view, there's a lot. Um, one of the things uh, we've seen 
big increases in inventories in both wholesale and retail level. And, you know, back where I come from, you see more supply, you expect that to put downward pressure on prices. Doesn't mean prices start to fall right away, but you have a lot more supply. Uh, Stores are well stocked. In other words, I don't mean every store everywhere or everything. But on average, they're pretty well stocked right now. That should put downward pressure on prices. The other points along those lines, uh, we have indices for things like shipping. Um, Those are turned downward. So those are growing up all through the fall. They peaked around November, and then they've been kind of leveled off, and then they've been heading down the last couple months. And uh, for truck shipping, um, there's a lot of indicators. There's an index, I'll have to say I wasn't familiar with it, but there's an index of the percentage of of tender offers, uh, you know, truckers, Offering, uh, I'm sorry, not truckers, uh, shippers offering, you know, saying, will you take my load, that are turned down. And that's plummeted. So in other words, truckers are happy to take the loads now. That that indicates there's not a shortage. And one more thing along those lines, there's been a, a big decline in used car prices. Used car prices have literally gone through the roof. They've risen by more than 50% in the last two years since the pandemic. And the last couple of months have been falling sharply. So I looked at those things, you know, they're early indicators, but I think we are seeing a turnaround. So this doesn't mean prices are all going to plummet, the full rise in inflation is going to be reversed, but I think we are going to be getting good news on that front. Well, that, that's good to know because inflation is sort of a political killer. Uh, sort of, I think it was... Um, yeah, inflation, you know, I'm old enough to remember the Jimmy Carter days. Yeah, that's you know, right. He was roasted, and the conventional view still, you know, more than 40 years later, is always the economy was a disaster under Carter. It actually wasn't. We created a huge number of jobs under Carter. Um, so there were a lot of good things you could say about the economy under Carter. But, yeah, inflation was a problem, uh, no doubt about it. And, you know, people look to, you know, what they pay for food, what they pay for gas, and, uh, you know, they get very upset by that, and, you know, understandably. But, you know, two points I'll make. One is that we often hear, oh, well, inflation hits uh, low-income people the hardest. Well, one of the, to my view, very good things we've had about this recovery is the people seeing the sharpest wage growth are those at the bottom of the wage ladder. So wages for people working convenience stores and hotels, they've risen about 20% over the last two years. So that's likely going to cover, you know, whatever more they might be paying for gas or milk. Um, Restaurants have gone up about 16%. So you've seen very sharp wage increases at the bottom end of the wage ladder. So to my view, that's a great story. The other part is the media certainly plays a really big role in this. You know, I've been watching more news than I typically would be because of the war, of course. And um, I've been struck that whenever they talk about an economic issue, it's always inflation. So just uh, we got the jobs report just last Friday, and you know, all the stories were, oh, good jobs report, but what about inflation? And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, well, we talk about inflation when we get the price data. We're getting another price report uh, out tomorrow. Um, that's when we talk about inflation. Why are you talking about when we got the jobs report? You know, it's, if you want to mention that, that's fine. But that was probably half the story. So we had a really extraordinarily good jobs report, uh, the unemployment rate down to 3.6%, 430,000 jobs, you know, really, you know, a very, very strong job market, which, you know, of course, that's where most people get their income. That means a big deal to a lot of people. Um, and it barely got mentioned. They immediately flipped over and started talking about inflation. So, you know, I understand people see inflation when they go to the store and they buy milk or, you know, they buy gas at the gas station, but they care about having a job. And 
that's kind of an important thing too. And you know, the media doesn't seem interested in talking about that. They want to talk about inflation. Uh, maybe Steve is a small businessman and um, um, head of the uh, hospitality council and stuff. Can talk a little bit about the impact of this on Sedona. Are you seeing what what Dean's talking about, Steve, or not? Well, Dean, I, a couple questions. You mentioned. Was, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't make out what you're saying. Steve Segner here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I could hear you. Okay. Um, my background is, is production and distribution uh, before I built a hotel. And just in time, you know, it's been around a long time, and I've never been a fan of it. And my fingers in the industry and talking to all my friends still around, they're all building inventories because they're scared to death of just in time and what it did to them. Uh, and I noticed the other day, one company moved to Phoenix uh, last week, and they bought 385,000 square feet of distribution space. So I'm seeing a lot of the people I used to deal with building and buying big warehouses and stockpiling because they just don't do this just in time from Canada. What's your thought on that? I mean, from China, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's almost what you said there. Um, so it's, it's been interesting to me that, you know, there's been a lot of sort of dumping on – the prank just in time, you know, but in general, lean inventories, uh, look what it did to us in the pandemic. And I have to say, uh, in, in general, I'm not that impressed with that argument because saying that, oh, look at this, we weren't prepared for a once in a century pandemic, um, you know, I mean, okay. But in a certain sense, I actually don't think we did very badly. Uh, most of us still got the food we needed, we got the drugs, we didn't, the, the economy didn't collapse. So, the fact that we're paying a little more for a car, used car prices went through the roof, um, that, that really doesn't seem to me a very bad story, you know, for once in a century pandemic. Now, as we come out of this, and again, I was trying to catch what you were saying, I'm not sure I caught everything. I, I think one of the things that what we have seen is because so many businesses have seen shortfalls of different items, that they're over they're, they're overcompensating. So car company needs, you know, not just the semiconductors, they need, of course, tires, they need, you know, their, the, you know, equipment for their engines, you know, they need all these different things. So they might be trying to overcompensate and in fact stockpile all these various items to a much greater extent than they might typically need because they're worried that they may not get the next shipment for another two or three or four months. So I think we likely are seeing some of that, and that's, you know, I don't know anyone who has good data. I mean, there's some anecdotal evidence on that. And it does make sense that, you know, if you had to shut down your factory because you couldn't get whatever part, it might make sense. That you go, okay, I don't want that to happen again, so I'm going to make sure I have a three-month supply sitting in the warehouse. So that further complicates the reopening. And, again, this points to the, you know, sort of one-time story, the transitory story, as opposed to an ongoing problem in the economy. Because at some point, you know, go, okay, you know, I've got my stockpile, I'm able to run regularly. Um, I don't have to keep having a huge amount of excess supply. So I think we'll, we'll likely get to that point if we aren't there already, and we'll start to see things run more smoothly. But again, to my view, that very much fits with the one-time story. I should also point out a big difference in I don't think this has gotten anywhere near enough attention. A big difference, because people always refer back to the 70s. That was when we had, you know, our last big inflationary wave, a wage price spiral. Well, when we look at that, there was a real story of wages driving inflation. So you had uh, prices would go up, workers would, you know, prices go up 5%, workers demand 5% wage increases to offset that. 
then companies go, okay, we need to protect our profit margin, so we're going to raise prices 6%, you know, and then workers go back and demand 6%. So you have this wage price spiral. It's hard to tell that story today because profits have actually increased a lot. So they're clearly not being driven by wages. So that doesn't mean we can't get a wage price spiral down the road. But to date, at least, I don't see any evidence of that. And as long as the profit shares have increased, which, again, they have, that's not really a disputable point, it's very hard to see that wage price spiral. So, again, that's another factor I look at that tells me this is likely to be transitory. Once we settle out, you know, go through these reopening problems, which, you know, are a big deal, and the Ukraine war is added to that, um, then I think we'll start to, you know, go back. I don't know necessarily the, you know, the same levels of inflation we had before the pandemic, but ones that people are much more comfortable with. Yeah, because it in the past has set off a very uh, violent uh, political reaction. One poll I saw, it was a CBS <clears throat> poll, was sort of interesting. They asked people how the local job market was and, and how things were locally, and 50 56% of the people said good. And then they asked nationally how the economy was doing, and 31% of the people said good. It's almost a complete reversal from what they see going on in their local area with what they think is going on in the nation. Is is that a common split or is that just one CBS poll? Yeah, well, this is something that we've seen. And again, I think this directly goes to media coverage because, you know, the similar question, how are you doing? And most people say their finances are pretty good um, versus how they think you know, the economy's doing or how they think most people's finances are doing, and they generally say pretty bad. So obviously people have a reasonably good sense of their own finances, I think, in general. Um, they don't necessarily have a good idea of, you know, the you know the economy in general, other people's finances, and, you know, the same story you're saying with the job market. And I think this gets back to the media coverage. I saw one poll where they asked people whether, and I forget exactly how it was framed, but whether we created more jobs than we lost last year or we lost more jobs than we created. And a clear majority thought we lost more jobs than we created. Well, guess what? 2021 was the best year for job growth ever, literally. It was the best year we created over 6 million jobs. Yet most people thought we lost more jobs than, than we created. Now, part of that, I'm sure, is per, purely a partisan story. You know, people like, hate Joe Biden. They like Donald Trump or they're Republicans, whatever. And they're going to say, okay, things are bad because, you know, there's a Democrat in the White House. Joe Biden's in the White House. Um, but part of that is, you know, I think the media story that, you know, they're reporting on inflation. And I just said, you know, we had the jobs report come out for, for March, and it was really a great jobs report. I don't think anyone can look at it and say, is there anything other than a great jobs report? And it barely got any coverage. <laughs> One of the papers, I, I read the Washington Post carefully, and they did mention it. It was covered when the report first came out. I looked again for the story later in the day. It was buried. I had to go to the business section. It wasn't on the front page. Um, at literally anywhere on the front page. I mean, I scrolled all the way down the front page. It wasn't anywhere. So, you know, people just weren't hearing that. So I think, you know, people obviously have a decent sense of their own finances. They might know their family, you know, their kids, their, you know, immediate relatives. But they clearly, you know, when you're talking about the economy as a whole, they're getting that from the media. And for whatever reason, the media has really been incredibly negative in talking about the economy under Biden. The other thing I, I saw in the poll, uh, Dean, was and uh, and the rest of us here, if you guys want to comment, was that the Republicans are so anti-Biden, so that they're like you know eighty-five percent negative, that that 
That means that any poll about how Biden is doing, and he was doing fairly well, he dropped down into 42% in like November, and it stayed at longer in the, in the low 40s. Um, but when you have that skewer where I can't imagine anything that uh, Joe Biden would do that would ever get, you know, a large percentage of the Trump Republicans to say he was doing the right thing. Well, you know, in in the past, newspapers, when we used to have newspapers, they put blood and carnage on the front to make it sell. And I think we've switched from newspapers to TV now. And so we sell what we think people want to hear. And they don't really want to hear the job report was great. <clears throat> they, want, they want to hear what they want to hear. So uh, you, I think you're totally right. It's The media is distorting. What we've going through is actually very, very good times. Um, what I've noticed, my clientele, <clears throat> excuse me, is that we have a lot of young millennials now that are different than the boomers. They're making very good money, um, not necessarily have any children. Uh, they rent. They aren't buying. Uh, and uh, they have a dual income of $180,000 in many cases, and they're four years out of college. So um, hotel prices have skyrocketed because these people want to go out and do things as opposed to buy things. So my sense is the economy is kind of going into the idea of a service economy as opposed to a manufactured thing economy. What's your thought? I only caught bits and pieces of that. I mean, part of the story, I think part of what you were saying is that the Republicans don't feel bound at all by being truthful. And, and I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, I know plenty of people who are in the Biden administration and they try to be careful. And I harangue them if they, you know, say something that's clearly for, I mean, not that they necessarily care that much. I harangue them, but, you know, I talk to them and, you know, they, they have a sense they're trying to, obviously, you know, if you're in the Democratic administration and Biden administration, you're trying to tell the best story you can, but you don't just make things up. Whereas with the Republicans, I, I, I remember one of the uh, congresswomen from Michigan just said, oh, we lost a record number of jobs last year. Like, you know, just, that, that's not an arguable point. We have debt on jobs. We created a record number of jobs. They feel no qualms about just making things up. So, you know, that's, you know, there's a real asymmetry between the parties. I think you know, most of the Democrats feel an obligation to try to be truthful, and again, all politicians spin. That's the world. I mean, and, you know, you can hardly blame them, but that's that, that's the world. They're going to try and put the best face on things. And but the Democrats generally feel a need to be truthful. The Republicans don't feel bound at all by that. No. The other point that I was going to make on this, and again, getting back to the media's reporting, um, you know, if we think about the pandemic and the recovery, this is sort of like a natural catastrophe. It's beyond the control of whoever's in the White House. I mean, you can't make the pandemic just go away. I mean, you do things like get the vaccines out, which the Biden administration did a very good job at doing, but you can't just make it disappear. So it's kind of like a hurricane. So the way the reporting has been, it's sort of like we had a big hurricane hit Louisiana. Suddenly we have all these people homeless, and then you go to the governor and you go, well, you really messed up. Look at this. You have all these homeless people. And you don't talk about the hurricane. And to a large extent, I think that is kind of what we're seeing with the reporting. Oh, my God, look at this inflation under Biden. You know, he's really going to have a hard time, you know, politically because people are upset about the inflation. Well, it's because you don't go, well, yeah, but yeah. the inflation is overwhelmingly because we had this once in a century pandemic and yeah, we're trying and, to get out of it. And, Dean, it's also so, because the majority. I think that's you know, a really important aspect <laughs> to it that is, is often missed in, in the public discussion. 
what Steve was, and I'll let Karen get yeah. in here in a second, but what Steve was sort of saying is, is in the restaurant industry and in, in Sedona, he's seen a real change in the clientele. They're much younger clientele. They're uh, very prosperous. They're not interested in buying things, including houses. They're interested in renting. When they come and stay in the hotels, uh, they're not interested in room service or something. They're interested in getting out and doing things. So he sees that there's a shift probably in his in his area from an interest in, you know, coming to Sedona and buying some art and stuff, which would be good for me, uh, to coming to Sedona and just doing things, getting out, getting moving. And so he sees a, a, a shift in his area even more toward a service economy. Is that right, Steve? Is that pretty much? Yes. What do you see nationally? And, and, and is, is our macro view, I mean, is our micro view accurate for what's happening in the country? Is there, is the new generation making a shift in how, they, how money is spent? Yeah, I'm not that sure on that. I mean, I, I'd like to think that was true. I mean, people are more interested. I mean, I like to hike. You know, I think that's fantastic. And, you know, people do outdoor things. Is that growing? Um, I'm just not sure. I haven't seen good data on that. I mean, it may well be the case. I just don't know one way or the other. I mean, all of us were more active when we were younger than, you know, when we get into our 50s and 60s. So um, is is it the case that... You know, people are being more active now, uh, doing more things. You know, again, I think that's great insofar as that's true. Um, I just don't know if that's true. Um, so, you know, I guess we'll see. I mean, one of the things that, you know, a shift that I think will be enduring from the pandemic is we see more people working from home. And, and you know, again, a lot of that was because of the pandemic, but even as the pandemic has largely receded, it seems the number of people working from home is, is staying much, much higher than was pre-pandemic, and also much more flexible work schedules, which, you know, again, to my view, I mean, it's something I've argued about for a long time, that, you know, the U.S. really is kind of an outlier and that we have the 40-hour work week. Um, a lot of people uh, don't have any vacation at all because we don't guarantee, the government doesn't guarantee any paid vacation, whereas in countries, you know, Germany, France, people four, five, six weeks a year of vacation. Um, so I think we are going to see more flexible work schedules, uh, more more time off, and more work from home, all of which I think are great developments. And, you know, we'll see how that pans out. And, again, I understand this isn't going to be for everyone in the sense, at least the work from home. You know, if you're working in a factory, if you're working in a restaurant, obviously you can't do that from home. So that's not going to be for everyone. But it is it is a significant share of the population. It's not just, you know, say the top 10% or something. You have a lot of people that were doing office work you know, that weren't especially high up on the, the income ladder that now might be able to work from home either completely or at least two or three days a week. And, you know, again, to my view, that's a, that's a great benefit. Karen, did you have a question yeah, for just, Dean? Yeah, just on the talking about the media and some of those issues, you know, the average American is pretty uneducated about economics generally. It's a lot easier to say, oh, it's Biden's fault because my gas cost me $4.50 because people don't understand that the price of a barrel of oil they hear on the news you know, that's costing Shell oil has anything to do with what the actual price in your Shell gas station locally is about all the aspects between, you know, OPEC's price and what you pay at the pump. And that's you know, so in, on a lot of economic issues, we're pretty much uneducated. So it's a lot easier, you know, to, to pick that one talking point. You know, it's Biden's fault that 
the, you know, we're losing jobs. It's Biden's fault or whoever the president happens to be that gas prices are up. So we respond to that very simple. We don't want the complicated answer. We want that. Who do I blame? Is it Biden's fault? Is it Putin's fault? Is it, you know, is it the greedy CEO of the pharmaceutical company because my drugs cost more? We like to have that easy one person to blame. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's true. Uh, I think, for example, Dean, we hear about the supply chain crisis. I don't think most people understand why kinks in the supply chain cause a rise in prices. I don't think that they get the connection. They hear the phrase, but I don't think that they understand the connection between supply chain issues and, and the rise of inflation. Yeah, I think that, you know, people are confused. And, you know, again, I think this is, you know, on the one hand, the fault of the media. On the other hand, you know, we were talking earlier about oil prices. I mean, again, a huge amount of uh, deliberate confusion, if you like, created by the Republicans. Because one of the things that, you know, a number of them saying, oh, well, Biden canceled the XL pipeline, the, the uh, uh, Keystone pipeline. And that's true, <laughs> except it wouldn't have been open in any case. So, I mean, A, we're getting much of that oil anyhow, so the impact of that on oil prices is probably almost zero, even if we're open. But it wouldn't have been open. It wasn't finished. It, it's not as though, you know, we were getting large amounts of oil through that that suddenly we're not. So, you know, the Republicans have been promoting, oh, Biden is environmentalism. That's what's, you know, caused gas prices to go through the roof. And it, it's literally nonsense. I mean, I would actually would have been happy if he'd done more measures to restrict uh, production, but he, in fact, hasn't done you know, very much is really a very low impact. And again, the other thing is, oil is a world price. Um, if if we produce more oil in the U.S., that only has a benefit insofar as it lowers the world price of oil. And you really can't come up with a serious story where we go, okay, you know, we call up the oil companies, do whatever you want. You know, we don't care. Drill under, you know, the state capitals, destroy the national parks, whatever you feel like. You know, in two years, we'll have almost zero impact on the price of oil and gas. And that's just the reality. But they've created this illusion that, oh, there was one case where Biden didn't let them drill where they wanted or he put on some restriction. Therefore, oil's, you know, going over 100 barrel or gas is over four bucks a gallon. And it, it, it's literally just complete nonsense. Dean, I have a question for you, something I've noticed. We seem for the last 20 years to encourage people to go to college and think with their brains and not with their hands. And what we're noticing in Sedona is we have a huge shortage of skilled laborers, electrician, plumbers. Everybody in town is in their 70s. And jobs are just being postponed. Uh, wages have gone up considerably. Uh, I, I, my gut feeling is this isn't going to go away. It seems like we, we're going to have a huge shortage of workers, and the ones we have are going to be able to demand quite a bit more money. I've done several projects locally that have all come in 30 40% over budget just because of labor. Uh, so I don't see this labor shortage disappearing in certain fields. The other thing that's interesting in Sedona is many weeks, none of the hotels can get any food deliveries from Phoenix because they don't have truck drivers to bring the food up here. So I see that as transitorial, but I, I, I talk to almost everybody in uh, the service field, and they have nobody following them up to take their jobs. Dean, could you hear that? 
No, I caught almost none of that. <laughs> okay. I, okay. Can you, can you curse? Can you? Can you yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. What What I'm finding out in Sedona as a prime is just a, a, a microorganism. Is it? Um, there are no workers under 70. We stopped for 30 years training people in the trades. We got rid of our unions who trained a lot of our workers, our electrical workers and plumbers. And they also helped control prices because the unions could go back and demand more money. So we've kind of been under inflation for many years in many of these trades. Well, right now, the average tradesman in Sedona is in his 70s, and he has nobody behind him. Uh, and I can't see that gap being filled quickly. So um, in, in, in Sedona in particular, that's what's driving up prices for building. It's almost a $600 a square foot now uh, just because we don't have the people who can do the labor. Do you see that changing? That's a great <clears throat> question. Um, this has been something that has been ongoing in large parts of the country that you did have this apprentice system where – largely under the unions that they had trained people in, in plumbing, in electricians, you know, other uh, building trades, and that kept a, a supply of, you know, competent tradespeople. And, you know, what you're seeing in Sedonia, that's true a lot of places. Uh, it's certainly true here in Kanab. There's a real shortage of, you know, we're trying to get a plumber. We want someone to paint our house. I mean, these are things that are really hard to do. I mean, I do a lot of this stuff myself. More than, I'm not very good at, but, you know, it's there, there's a real shortage. And it's really unfortunate because these can be, well, they are pretty good paying jobs. And, you know, if we had kept these pipelines going or rebuild them where we stand now, I think it'd be a big deal. It'd be a great thing for the economy and for a lot of people. I mean, it's it's a good career. If you have a career as a plumber, electrician, you know, you won't get rich, but you could certainly have a comfortable uh, middle-class living standard. So I think it's really unfortunate that that's been neglected, and um, you know, if we could do something to to rebuild those pipelines, uh, again, it'd be great for the people who are able to enter those trades, and uh, great for the economy because we, we obviously need those people. You need electricians, you need plumbers. It's really important. Whoops! It's been a morning of kind of uh, things in my my cell phone. No one ever calls me, Dean. I'm like the uh, The loneliest guy on the block, and now we, when I'm on the show, we got yeah. And, and I know from Germany, I know from Europe, we we went to a whole program explaining how the German uh, system of training apprentices and physical stuff work. You almost, I think, a lot of times you almost got to go to a kind of university to learn trades. It's not a university university, but it's a trade university. Um, and it means that everybody is certified. Everybody is, you know, so that you know when you hire somebody that they've gone through a certain program. Uh, we don't have it. And I, I think that, you know, that, that's a sign of, of American sh- short-sightedness. Do you see other economic short-sightedness that, that if we could overcome, we could, we could get to a better economy than we've got? I missed that. I'm sorry. Okay. You were saying something about being short-sighted, and I missed everything after that. Okay. I'll be right on top of the microphone. Uh, all right. So um, not training in apprentices is a shortcoming. It's a short-sightedness in the American economy and American political and, and educational decisions. Are there other 
areas where our short-sightedness is contributing to the problems of our, of our economy. Oh, yeah. I mean, all sorts of areas. <laughs> Global warming just being an obvious one. I mean, there's this real effort to pretend it's not happening. And um, I don't know if you guys get electricity from, from the dams here along the Colorado, but, you know, they're, they're drawing up. I mean, we're next to Lake Powell, and Lake Powell's just about 20 feet above the point where it can no longer generate electricity. But yet there's very little been done in the way of trying to conserve water. So there's just this hope, oh, the drought's going to end. And, and to be clear, it's, it's like a 20-year drought. This isn't what we just didn't have a good you know, rain year last year, rain snow year last year. This is 20 years. It's, it, there's no reason to think that's going to change. Um, so... That, that's an obvious example, but, uh, I mean, you can think of so many areas. I mean, dealing with the pandemic, I was enormously frustrated that there there was we, – we immediately rushed down. Admittedly, Donald Trump, who only cares about his crowd sizes, he was in the White House. But there was no real effort to have international coordination. And it, it, it was – I mean, this isn't just like, oh, it would be nice if we could all sit down and do things together. We should have done a all-out effort – to get the vaccines uh, manufactured and stockpiled as quickly as possible. And just be clear what I mean. You know, we had the, you know, here, the Moderna, the Johnson & Johnson, the um, uh, Pfizer vaccines uh, approved in Europe. They had AstraZeneca. China had two vaccines that were approved by the WHO. What would have made sense was to coordinate internationally, share the production technology, share it with everyone all over the world, Whoever could produce the vaccines produces them, and ideally have large stockpiles at the point they're approved. Mm -hmm. So I've had people go, oh, but what if it turned out they're ineffective? Who gives a damn? So let's imagine we had a billion of the uh, billion doses of the Moderna vaccine in December. FDA does its analysis and goes, oh, they don't pass. So what? You throw them in the garbage. You know, that's $1 billion, maybe a billion and a half. It doesn't cost that much to produce them. Versus the alternative where they turned out to be effective, which was the case, you can get those in people's arms much more quickly if you already have them. And, oh. you know, again, there was no, no forward thinking about that. We could have saved millions of lives, trillions of dollars, but, you know, you just, you just go to people and go, well, how could we have done that? Go, Come on, you guys aren't morons. You put it on the web. You know, you share the information, people talk to each other, put it on the web, anyone who's able to produce it, go ahead and produce it. And you don't worry about patents, you know, this is the whole thing. Oh, we have to protect Pfizer's patent because they won't make enough money. Who gives a damn? Get the thing produced. So, yeah, <laughs> that was pretty short-sighted thinking. We paid a huge price for it in lives and money. Uh, Ukraine, um, Russia, produced is tremendous producer of natural resources. I remember talking to a, a Russian oh, in the, the 80s, and I said, you know, you guys are, why aren't you trying to build your own computers and washing machines? And, and he said, well, we have all these natural resources. We'll just sell them. We're a natural resource country. So now we've had a, a collapse of the breadbasket of a lot of Africa uh, in the Ukraine and, and Russia. So people are looking at the spike in oil prices from the, from the Ukrainian war, but they have not yet focused on the price of, of wheat and stuff that's going to be happening. Um, is there any way to, to manage that better? So we have a war, a whole area is, uh, is not producing what it does. Is there a way to plan or compensate for that? 
I, you know, I think the stories have been somewhat overblown in the sense that, you know, Ukraine is a major producer of wheat, uh, Russia as well, and uh, we'll see what happens with, with that. But I think the stories have been somewhat overblown in the sense that our crops, meaning worldwide crops, not just the U.S., but U.S., Canada, you know, the rest of the world produce wheat, those vary a lot year from year anyhow. So let's say, and I'd have to double check this, but let's say Ukraine's exports are 5% of the world market. So I don't mean world exports, 5% of the wheat the whole world consumes. And, you know, it's probably ballpark number. It could be as high as 10. I doubt it. You know, but let's say it's 5%. Well, if that's all cut off, which maybe it will be, I mean, that'd be, of course, unfortunate. But our crops vary by 5% year in, year out, depending on whether we have a good year or a bad year. So I think that is overplayed. Now, on the other hand, yeah, I mean, wheat prices, actually the price of most commodities had risen a lot before the, the, the war, and even before people thought the war might be possible. So, you know, if you state the start, start of February when Russia was starting their military exercises, well, a lot of people might have reasonably thought there'd be a war. But if you go back even before that, the end of uh, 221, I don't think many people thought war was very likely there. Um, we already had a big increase in wheat prices as well as corn and soybean. Um, I think what we have to do is try to, you know, on the one hand, make sure a lot of developing countries have the money to buy this stuff. And that means things like the IMF gives special drawing rights. It'd be a good occasion to give the, the, those are basically like dollars for people who don't, I won't go into details here, but it's pretty much the same as just giving them dollars, but it's no direct cost to the U.S. taxpayer. So give them special drawing rights, but also, you know, what we should be trying to do is promote production wherever we can. I mean, do what we can to encourage, you know, our farmers to produce as much wheat as they can and with the idea that it will be exported. Um, you shouldn't have to do too much pushing because they're making money at it, but, you know, trying to see, you know, where there might be obstacles. They can't get the fertilizer. Apparently a lot of fertilizer comes from Ukraine, so that's an issue. But, you know, so to try and, you know, the government, you know, government shouldn't be replacing anyone here, but trying to figure out where their roadblocks and what they could do to overcome them. So, as I say, I think the stories that, oh, we're going to mass starvation, anything can happen, but that's not a necessary outcome from the war. And, you know, it's bad enough without that. But, you know, hopefully um, we won't see that. Dean, when I was a young kid in the 50s, um, they talked about inflation as being milk and eggs because most of the people's income went to food and housing. Um, I find it interesting now how much of inflation is really food-oriented because people still go out and they go to McDonald's, they're buying processed foods. It's not like in the 50s where they're cooking at home. Um, is inflation really hitting us in the stomach, or is it more housing and cars and hard goods? It's a good question. Um, food inflation's been right about even with the overall rate of inflation rate, the overall rate of inflation over the last year. So we're looking at a little over 7%. I think it was 7.8 actually in the last month, year over year inflation. Food was right about there. I think it was actually a little bit less, around 7 um, so it's not been a driver, but there has been a big increase in food prices. But what's really been a driver, I was mentioning before, used cars going up 50%. That's a huge deal. I mean, it's not that large a share of the index, but when it goes up 50%, that's a huge deal. Uh, of course, oil and gas, I mean, you know, again, those have gone up a huge amount over the last year. So, so those are big deals. And then a lot of other items, this is very much a supply chain story, a lot of things that don't typically rise in prices. So like apparel, which usually is flat or even falling slightly, it's gone up about 6 or 7% over the last year. 
um, various household appliances that have gone up about 9 or 10%. Again, those are usually flat or falling slightly. So you have a lot of items that don't typically go up in price, often fall, and those have jumped sharply in the last year. So, again, that's that's the supply chain story that I and others have looked at because I don't think the conditions, the cost of producing those items have increased hugely. I really do think it's just we have this big backlog at the ports and you know other other obstacles in trying to get the stuff from the producers to to the stores, and those are going away. And that should mean many of those prices will come back down. That would be great. Uh, I know from ordering stuff from China that the length of time between the order and and receiving it has gone up astronomically in the last few years so you know it used to be you'd order and you get something in a couple of weeks and now um the supply chain is such that when you order from china it 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 takes months sometimes to get your order um that yeah, can't that's, be good. You know, again, that's another big wild card in this story. China, obviously a lot of what we buy does come from China, and China's clung to the zero COVID policy. So what that means is when they get even a small number of cases, they'll shut down, in some cases, a large city. And, of course, the one right now, Shanghai, I don't know if that's the largest or second largest, but it's a huge, huge city. Um, that's shut down right now. So there's a lot of stuff that we're getting or would be getting that – produced in Shanghai that's not being produced right now because of their zero COVID policy. And, you know, again, it's, I mean, it's their call what they want to do, but, you know, it it strikes me at the start of the pandemic when they had zero COVID policy, one could argue the merits because at that point we didn't have any vaccines, we didn't have really effective treatments, so trying to make sure it didn't spread uh, wasn't necessarily a bad thing, even at a a very large cost in terms of keeping people in their homes, whatever. Um, once, given where we are, and their vaccines are not as effective as ours, but they actually are quite effective in preventing severe illness and death, um, given where we are, it's it's hard to see the logic of that. But again, obviously, they're going to do what they're going to do. And what that's likely to mean is that a lot of the items that we typically would be importing from China, um, we're not going to be able to get, or at least it'll take a lot longer. Dean, and this is Steve again. Uh, my background's in the pet food industry, so I keep my eye on inputs. And I was calling around the other day and asking what's being planted and when's it going in the ground. And everybody was telling me they're going to plant soybeans. And I said, why are we planting soybeans? And they said, well, the inputs for fertilizer for corn are too high. So the farmers are going to plant soybeans. So those are the kind of things that drive prices. And it's not just, you know, if, if the farmers all decide that they're going to plant soybeans and not enough corn, corn prices are going to go up. So those are the kind of things we saw in manufacturing. What do you feel about that? You've got yeah, well, two that's, minutes. That's exactly the sort of thing where, you know, the government can play a useful role, where if it's the case that, um, you're seeing a big shift from, from corn to soybeans. And, you know, if it's likely to be the case that maybe we're going to have a glut of soybeans. So people might be looking at, farmers might be looking at the soybean price today and going, oh, well, um, you know, the, given the expense of the fertilizer for corn, I'm better off planting soybeans. But if you go, okay, everyone's doing that, price of soybeans might be, you know, 20%, 30% lower when you're harvesting them, then that may not be a good idea. That's the sort of thing that the government's in a position to oversee that. I mean, we can't tell them. People are going to do what makes sense for them, but try to get them the information. And if you can, try to help them get the fertilizers they need to, to, to grow the corn. You know, so that's, that's where government can play a constructive role, and I have no idea if they are or not doing that. But that's, that's the sort of thing that... We're going to have to wrap it do. up. 
Uh, we've got one minute left. We want to thank our supporters. Um, ah, you really have to be on the mic with this system, huh? All right. We want to thank all our supporters for Democratic Perspective. We're going to have a fundraiser in May. We hope everybody will support it. Um, Door has a uh, series of things. First, their office is open. Um, they have a fundraiser on this April 19th. And the door breakfast is on April 21st. Do you know who's speaking, Karen? I don't know. Okay. I remember. Okay. That. So, so, yeah, the 19th fundraiser should be good. That's a film about Stacey Abrams at the uh, Mary Fisher Theater. Ah, sounds interesting. Well, we want to thank uh, Dean uh, Baker for being with us. We'd like to check in with him. This is uh, uh, Democratic Perspective, Perspective, KAZM 780 on your AM. Check with us next week. This podcast will be available online probably tomorrow. Thank you very much, folks. You've been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.